0: If you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Job, we're going to be picking up at chapter 8. We concluded chapter 7 a couple weeks ago. Remember that message was entitled Participation Ribbon, talking about the sufferings of Christ, that as the people of God participate in the mission and work of Jesus Christ, they are earning their participation ribbon. It's a necessary evidence of our salvation. So this morning we're going to be picking up at chapter 8. Looking at the entire chapter 1 through 22. That's on page 421. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning as your assembled church, we make this request that you would help us to understand your word. We recognize the importance of. Of understanding the passage in its original context, what you were saying to the original readers. And Father, we understand that once once we get there, then we can draw application. Then we can bring it into the now. So please give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the passage and help us to, to live more rightly before you as we apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1950 version of Cinderella, Disney's rendition of the the movie Cinderella, you remember this is a traditional fairy tale. It begins once upon a time in a kingdom and it ends with the prince and the princess married and driving happily away uh, from from there on in a carriage, uh, happily ever after. But you remember that the route that it takes to get there is filled with conflict like a lot of uh, good fairy tales and our good stories are. And if you remember in, in, in one scene there is the the trying on the slipper scene and this is because Cinderella in her haste fled the castle and left one of her glass slippers on the stairwell on the stairway and uh, the prince recovered it and because they didn't know the name of the the maiden They are going house to house, trying on the glass slipper. So the Grand Duke and his assistant uh, bring the glass slipper in on this pillow, and all eligible maidens are supposed to try it on. Now, when they arrive at Cinderella's house, if you remember, she is not there. She is locked in a tower by her evil stepmother, and so she's unable to get down initially to try on the slipper. But her two stepsisters are... And it's quite comical, really. The two stepsisters tried to, to try on the glass slipper, and the first one uh, has has the slipper slipped on her foot, and at first glance it looks like it fits. And she said, oh, look, it fits. And the, and the Grand Duke uh, puts the, the monocle up to his eye to make sure it, it fits, and Sure enough, it looks like it's right there, but when she lifts her leg up to say, look, it fits, her, her dress slides down a little bit, and it's revealed that the, the shoe is really simply just hooked onto the, the toe area, and it doesn't come anywhere near clearing the heel, and so it's it's not a fit at all, and so then, the, you know, faces fall in disappointment. Well then it's the second step sister's turn and she also grabs the slipper and, and the uh, assistant to the Grand Duke tries to make the slipper fit and she accuses him of not working hard enough so he rolls up his sleeves and, and really tries to get the shoe on there and, and pushes and, and squeezes and, and finally she said you're not doing it right and she waves him away. And he falls backwards and she says, I'll make it fit. And she she again exerts much effort. And finally, she says, it it fits. I knew it fits. It's my shoe. And yes, the toes are in the front and the heels in the back. But then there's this grotesque arching of the foot. And the the shoe is trembling from the tension like a loaded spring. And as soon as people get excited that it might be a fit, it snaps off her foot and flies across the room. Of course, in the end, neither of the stepsisters fit into the glass slipper because it's not theirs. It's Cinderella's. In the end, it does not fit. Bildad, in chapter 8, this is Job's second friend, and he's about to, to make his first appearance in Job. He has a system of thought, or if we can give ourselves permission, a shoe. A belief system of a shoe, and he wants Job to put it on. The problem is, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit at all. Now, like a lot of things that Job's three friends have to say in the book of Job, some of the things that Bildad says in chapter 8 are true. And so we want to make sure we mark those and understand that, yes, what he's saying there is accurate. That part is true. But in the end, this belief system of a shoe uh, just doesn't fit. It won't stay on the foot of reality and God's grace. Now, even though Bildad's shoe doesn't fit, there are still people today that are still trying to wear this old shoe. There are still people today who are pushing and and straining and trying to force the shoe onto their foot. And our goal this morning is to see that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Bildad's shoe will never fit anyone. So let's take a look at Job chapter 8, keep an ear out for for that belief system of a shoe, and also keep an ear out for some of the things that are actually true. Here's Job chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you, and tell you the latter words, or, and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower, and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never have never seen you." Behold, this is the way of the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. So we're going to begin with a, a powerful question. Now this is Bildad the Shuhite, and like the other friends of Job, we really don't know much about the background of Bildad. We know his name, but that's about all we know about Bildad. So we're not given a lot of background information. We don't have a genealogy to consult. And here's his opening remark in verse 2. How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Now Bildad uh, like Liphaz is not happy with Job's position. Remember, Job has taken the stance that he is enduring unjust suffering. He, Job is making the case that what has happened to him, all this calamity, is is not warranted because he's tried to live a blameless life before God. And Bildad is is not happy with that. He's not pleased that Job's trying to maintain his innocence in the face of. Suffering, so he calls Job's words a great wind. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. In Job 6:26, Job had called their words wind. So now Bildad is accusing Job's words of being wind. You can see how immature this this argument is getting. It's what we can almost hear him saying, "No, yours are." Or something like that. They, one accuses one words of being wind. the other one accuses the other person. Either way, uh, regardless, it's an insult. If someone accused your words of being wind, they, it means they're meaningless. They, they have no content. They're no, they have no substance. There's no truth to them. So after exchanging insults with Job, he moves in verse 3 to try to find some common ground. Something we can all agree on. So he says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? In other words, Bildad is asking this question. Does God get it wrong? Does God make mistakes, Job? That's the question. That's the powerful question. Of course, the answer is no. No. Here's one of those things in the book of Job where his three friends are providing this terrible counsel, but in the midst of this counsel, they're actually stating truth. That's true. God does not pervert justice. God does not twist or make crooked what should be made straight or what should be straight or to, to deal deceitfully. Now, in the ancient Near East, we know that um, there were dishonest merchants who would have two scales or two sets of weights or three sets of weights and uh, two or three different types of measures. So in order to make the most profit and to take advantage of, of the person they're dealing with, they would, if they were buying something from them, they would use heavy weights. So they would take the, the heavy set of, scale, of weights out and they would put that on one end of the scale so that the, the person they were buying from had to keep heaping grain until, until there was actually more there than what he was paying for. But if the merchant was selling goods, then he'd switch and get the, the lighter set of weights and he'd put those on the scale so he would only have to measure out less than, than what was warranted and deserved. So it wouldn't take a long, or a, or a measure that, that looked like a container, let's say we've got a container like this, but then there would be like a false bottom or something. So they would measure out the grain and, and pour it into their sack and say, see, I gave you a full measure, when in fact they didn't. God is not like that. God is not a dishonest merchant. God does not pervert justice. He does not twist things. He does not act deceitfully. We know that. It is at the very nature and character of God. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, referencing God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is just one example. It talks about the faithfulness of God, his righteousness, his uprightness. God is not a dishonest merchant. So Bildad is telling Job, I think we can all agree here, Job, that God doesn't make mistakes. Are you willing to to meet me halfway there? Come on, Job. Are you willing to admit that God does not make mistakes? Therefore, Job stop your whining and your complaining that all this has come upon you and it's not deserved because that's not how God operates. God doesn't deal out with a false measure, something that isn't deserved. He doesn't make mistakes. Well, the problem, of course, is that Job has not done something to deserve the suffering. Remember, this is why we hammered on that in chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Job repeatedly from the narrator and from the lips of God himself, we have God saying Job is upright, blameless, fears God, turns from evil. We have that repeated formula over and over again because the writer of the book intends for us to understand that as we go through this book, we need to view Job through that lens. He has not deserved this suffering. Therefore, everything that his friends are saying is not true. Well, here here it is again. They believe God has sent the suffering because Job deserved it. They cannot see, they cannot comprehend that God would do anything other than deal out retributive justice on someone who has committed some kind of evil. They can't see past that. The idea that God would have other reasons for sending suffering in someone's life is is not on the table for them. They're not getting it. And that's the the crux of the problem with Job's three friends. They just can't see that. Bildad, like Eliphaz, has a very simplistic cause and effect theology. They have a very simplistic cause and effect understanding of God's justice, of good and evil. Remember we talked about this earlier. They, They believe Good things happen to people who do good things, and bad things happen to people who do bad things. It's just that simple. That's their that's the shoe that Bildad wants Job to put on. It's very simplistic, it's very neat and tidy, but it doesn't fit. Especially when you add on to this shoe the phrase in this lifetime. In this lifetime. The, the shoe that Bildad is trying to get Job to wear is the shoe that says, whatever you've done, you're going to be repaid now, in this lifetime. Now in contrast to Bildad's shoe, we know that all things will be made right, but all things will not be made right in this lifetime, because this lifetime is not all that there is. We know from the rest of scripture, God has revealed this plainly to us and freely to us, that there is eternal reward and punishment. God's justice is not fully given out during our lifetime. That just uh, is not the way uh, God operates or uh, fulfills his judgment. So on the one hand, no, uh, God does not pervert justice. Bill Head's right about that part. But the cause and effect part means the shoe doesn't fit. Verse 4. Bildad desperately wants Job to wear this shoe. So he says, case in point, your kids. Your kids. They sinned, God delivered them into the hand of their transgression. You see, Job, God is just. That's how it works. They died suddenly. And by any outward observer, they they died by unnatural causes at the hand of God. Therefore, they must have done something wrong. Shoe fits. Then verses 5 and 6, the next verses are the, the positive side of God's justice and fair dealings. He said, Bildad saying, essentially, okay, your children sinned, so they they died, now it's your turn. If you repent, and if you turn to God, and if you start doing good things, then God's going to send good things your way. He's going to start showing you favor again. If you do the right thing, surely he will rouse himself for you. But, Job, first you have to admit it, you must have done something really bad, because what has happened to you is almost unheard of. You must have done something really bad. Not as bad as your kids because they died and you're still alive, but something really bad. And now's the time to turn. Now's the time to um, change your mind and put on the shoe that I'm offering. And if you urgently see God, then who knows? I think there's still time for restoration. Does this sound familiar? Again, it should, because it's very close to what Eliphaz said when he had his turn with Job. Remember chapter 5, it was kind of like, here's what I would do, Job. Uh, I think the words exactly were, as for me, I would seek God. That was what a life said to Job. He'd say, okay, if you want to know what I would do, you need to turn around, you need to start doing good things, and it starts with admitting your guilt. And then in verse 7, although your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. This is a prophetic statement, because we know from the end of the book, Job's days are great. Uh, Even though he had all these bad things happen to him, at the end of the book he's restored and he's actually in a better position than he was before the calamity hit him. So once again, this is another instance of Job's friends speaking and they're speaking truth even though he didn't know it. Well, this shoe is an old shoe. Verses 8 and 9, Bildad appeals to former generations. You'll see the phrase bygone ages, or what the fathers have searched out. Those that have gone before us, those who have gained wisdom. Here's Bildad saying, look, this isn't something I'm coming up with. This is something that has roots that go way back in antiquity. This comes from people who have lived long and and wise lives, and whose." who have gathered wisdom and and have imparted it and shared it. Uh, What the fathers have searched out. So he's appealing to tradition and the teachings of men, men men that are much smarter than, Bildad even includes himself, the both of us. There are those that have gone before us that are smarter than you, Job, and and me, Bildad, but we are, but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. He's Bildad's trying to appeal to Job's humility and saying, "Come on, do you really think you're you're smarter than all these people?" Now, if you remember, Eliphaz back when he had his turn with Job, he grounded his his uh, theology and his advice in his experiential observation. As I have seen, this is what it looks like, and that mysterious night spirit. Remember that that he had some kind of vision from a from an evil spirit, and that's where he grounded his authority. Bildad comes at it from a little different angle. He's grounding it in in historical wisdom and and those that have gone before us. But he's still grounding it in in something. He's still trying to provide, you know, a rationale for what he's saying. We both need to humble ourselves. Do you really think, Job, that we should consider ourselves smarter than everybody else? Is that the route you want to take? Are you really that arrogant that we know more than the wise ones of history? And then verse 10 Will they not teach you? Oh, always hurts to hear that one. Are you teachable, Job? Or are you so closed off you're, you're unwilling to listen? So he's appealing to his humility because he knows the answer is no. He knows the answer. Job's going to say, No, I'm not that arrogant. So then he, in verse 11 and 12, he moves to two illustrations. So we have two historical, or rhetorical questions about papyrus and reeds. Uh, can they grow without water? The answer is no, they can't grow without water. Uh, well, yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. So the papyrus and plant and these reeds were very common They would grow to 8 to 10 feet tall. They were very large, and they would flourish in in hot, swampy, watery places like the banks of the Nile in Egypt. And although they were robust plants and they grew to great height, if you took the water away, they would die very quickly. They would not survive, even when in full bloom, even when they were the height of of their vibrancy and life. So in verse 13, Bildad brings home the point of his illustration. Like this reed that dies quickly, even in full flower, so is the one who turns away and forgets God. So that's his point. Such are the paths of all who put their trust in themselves and their own strength. This is a quiet reference to his children. They were in full bloom, to use an analogy, and yet they were cut down and died very quickly. And Bildad's point is, and the same thing's going to happen to you, Job, if you don't put my shoe on and admit your guilt and start doing good things. Verses 14 and 15 describe the one who forgets God. His confidence is severed, his trust is in a spider's web or house. He leans against this house or the web, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. I mean, we get that. That's a pretty good illustration. A spider's web is strong enough to hold a spider. It works perfectly well for him, and it's a prey. But if we tried to lean against it, it would offer no resistance. I mean, we wave these things away with a brush of our hand. It's, It's not something we would grab onto if we were leaning over the Grand Canyon. We wouldn't grab onto a spider's web. That would be foolishness. He's saying that the one who trusts himself is like one who's trying to grab onto a spider's web for support not going to work. Those who trust in something other than the Lord God, in other words, your job, your wealth, your possessions, your property, investments, health, strength, intelligence, position, none of those things will support the one who turns away from God. It's like grasping at a spider web. Verses 16 and 19, he switches to another illustration, a plant before the sun. The roots spread out, looking for soil to push down into to get nutrients and water, and instead the plant finds a pile of stones, and it wraps its root around on the stones, the rocks. Once the plant is destroyed, the rocks deny ever having seen the plant, meaning as there's nothing left, It just dries up and blows away. There's no trace, no trace of it. And then it, he says, once the plant is gone, uh, other plants will spring up out of the ground. Bildad saying, that's you, Job. That's you. You were this lush green plant growing under the sun. Everybody respected you. Everything was going well. But you know what? Your roots didn't go down as deep as as we all thought they did. It turns out you were just wrapped around some rocks. And now you're destroyed and now you're gone and nobody's ever going to remember you and God is going to raise up other people to take your place out of the soil. That's you, Job. You've turned away from God. You've forgotten him. Now put this shoe on and start living rightly. Bill Dad concludes, still time to put it on. Verses 20 through 22. If you turn back now, God will not reject a blameless man. God will not reject you if you turn back. Even now, Job. Even though you're stubbornly refusing to admit your guilt. Why? Because God is just and he will not take the hand of evildoers. God doesn't reject the righteous and embrace the wicked. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. There's still time, there's still hope. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. God will once again be with you, Job, and against your enemies. Don't you want that, Job? Bildad is saying. Don't you want that? You have to admit your guilt. Stop this nonsense about being blameless. Come on. Stop this foolishness that say you don't don't deserve this punishment. God doesn't pervert justice. Are you calling God a liar, Job? Whatever you've done to bring this upon yourself, own up to it. Turn back to God, start living rightly, and then he's going to bring good things your way again. Well, like the sisters trying to try on that glass slipper, Bildad's shoe does not fit. It looks like it might work at first. It's kind of like the shoe hanging over the, the toes with the dress concealing the rest of the foot. I mean, does God divert justice? No. Does, does God twist things? No. He's got an unjust merchant? No, he doesn't do that. But then once we get to that cause and effect understanding of good and evil, it's like the, the shoe popping off of the, the foot that's been forced into it. It just doesn't work. The shoe ultimately does not allow room for reality or God's grace. It doesn't allow room for reality or God's grace. Let's take the first part of that. The shoe doesn't allow room for reality. First of all, Bildad's shoe doesn't allow room for Job's reality. Job was experiencing undeserved suffering. Remember, again, that's why it was so... Uh, emphatic at the beginning of the book. It wants us to look through that lens and understand this is not something that Job deserved. Therefore, as we read through the book, we can conclude that can't be the answer. Bildad's friends can't be correct, or excuse me, Job's friends can't be correct. It doesn't match Job's reality. Job ultimately was not suffering due to something that he did, It also doesn't allow room for anyone else's providential suffering. We looked at this a few weeks ago. God can send suffering for shaping, for equipping, for preparing. There there are a host of reasons why God would send suffering in someone's life. It doesn't always have to be a a repayment for evil that they've done. So it doesn't match providential suffering that we see in people's lives today. Bildad's shoe is a clean, no-loose-end system. It's a system that our sinful human nature naturally tends to run to. We want to see things made right right now. We want to see people that do good things get rewarded and people that do bad things get punished. Have you ever been, as a, as a child, who witnessed something on the, on the playground or in the classroom and then the teacher comes in and only sees part of it and hears a different story, and so the wrong person ends up getting the punishment? The response is, "Eh, no, no, they did it, not them. It's our response is to want to see justice done, and we want to see it now. With Bildad's shoe in place, we can look upon the world as Bildad did and say, there is no undeserved suffering. Everybody that's experiencing something bad deserves it. Are you suffering, Joe? Well, you deserve it. Your children died? Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but they must have deserved it. Your co-worker is, is enduring some kind of suffering? Well, they must have deserved it. Your neighbor is going through a really difficult time? Well, it serves them right. They must have deserved it. You are suffering. You must have deserved it. You must have done something. That's build that shoe, but it doesn't fit. It also doesn't fit the reality of everyone who is in Christ experiencing the sufferings of Christ. Everyone experiencing and earning their participation ribbon. As we participate in the mission and work of Jesus Christ, and we experience the suffering associated, and, and for his namesake, we are earning our participation ribbon. We are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Those things that, that happen to us, those, those negative things, are not necessarily tied to something we've done so it doesn't match reality. Job didn't deserve it. And let's just pull out the, you know, the big gun. Jesus did not deserve suffering. When Jesus went to the cross, he was not suffering for something that he did wrong. That was the purest form of undeserved suffering that the world will ever see so the shoe doesn't fit reality there is such a thing as undeserved suffering so that's number one it doesn't fit reality number two it also doesn't fit or allow room for God's grace because Jesus suffered undeservedly Bildad's shoe doesn't allow room for God's grace. Let's put it this way. If Jesus suffered because he had done something wrong, he hadn't. But let's say he was suffering for some sinful act. That means he wasn't the perfect sacrifice. That means he is no longer eligible to be the Messiah. He is no longer a fit substitution for sinful men and women like you and me it doesn't allow for room for God's grace. If, if Bildad's shoe is true, if, if there is no undeserved suffering, that means there is no cross, there is no grace. But praise God, Jesus was sinless. Praise God, Jesus did suffer in our place on the cross as the perfect sinless sacrifice. Praise God that the substitutionary suffering that Jesus did experience on the cross on our behalf was Real. That's at the heart of the gospel. You know, if we don't have a perfect Savior, then the gospel doesn't work. It had to be a perfect God-man. It had to be someone who is fully God and fully man. It had to be fully God, someone fully God because he had to be able to, to receive and take the full brunt of, of the wrath of God for all the sins of all the elect. And at the same time, it really had to be a man, because it had to be an equal substitute for Adam and, and everybody else. It had, to be, it had to be the second Adam that, that succeeded where Adam failed. It had to be both. He had to be perfect. Otherwise, it doesn't work. We read from Hebrews this morning, all those priests that went before us in the, under the Old Covenant, they had to make a sacrifice for themselves as well. Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. Because he was sinless. This old shoe of Bildad's is still around today. I, I knew a man who was convinced that organized religion was bad. He didn't want to have anything to do with churches or denominations or anything that, that actually looked like a formalized church. But at the same time, he desperately wanted to be viewed by everyone else as a morally upright man. And so he he did not go to church, but he read the Bible, but he had read other books too. You know, he read the Quran. he read the Talmud, he read a bunch of different religious writings, he read philosophers, he thought that was a good idea to be well-rounded, get the full knowledge. And he worked very hard, he had a strong work ethic, um, this is the type of person you want working for you. I mean, he was honest. He told the truth. He did. All, he checked all the boxes that says I'm a good person. He did it all, but he wasn't in Christ. And at the end of his life, as far as I know, he's still alive. At the end of his life, he's going to be turned away by the Son of God. Hell is going to be filled with people who strove to the best of their ability to be morally upright people in this life. But who have never bent the knee to Jesus Christ. What are they doing? They're wearing Bildad's old shoe. Good things happen to people who do good things. And the ultimate good thing would be to be delivered or received or accepted into heaven or whatever whatever they imagine the afterlife is going to be. So I'm going to be a morally upright person. Well, here's the thing: it's not just unbelievers who try to make the shoe fit onto the end of their foot. It's, unbel- it's, it's people who profess Jesus Christ as well. There's a recent survey data that I just heard: two thirds, two thirds of evangelicals, whatever you want that to mean, whatever you think evangelicals means, but self-reporting, two thirds say that good works have something to do with their salvation. Two-thirds, two-thirds of professing evangelicals, according to this survey, however accurate that was, are walking around and building its old shoe. Professing Christ. So I wonder if there might be anyone here today who has said yes to Jesus, but is still trying to make that shoe fit. Uh, Several years ago at a a different church, I was teaching a new members class, and uh, everybody seems to be on the same page, everybody was getting it, and I, as I always do, tried to explain the gospel in very clear, plain language, lots of scripture support, little little windows and, and snippets and verses of scripture to illustrate each step. I took them to Matthew 18, where Jesus teaches on the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and at the end he said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I went through it all, and at the very end of the class, we were going through things, and I could tell it just wasn't clicking in this person because, with this person, because they kept talking about the things that they were doing, that they were doing. And I, so I point-blank asked them, I said, what's the basis of your salvation? And without escaping a beat, they launched into, well, I I think I I, I have done this, and I've I've done this, and I'm I'm coming to church now, and I never did that before, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. And then they concluded by nodding and saying, I just know, I just know. And I said... And I did a quick review of the gospel once again. And I said, I'm not sure if you need to make this step right now. I think it might be a good idea to wait. And to their credit, they slowly stated back to me, I think you're right. I think I need to think about this a little bit longer. They, they had gotten all through that process and they were still wearing bill Dad's shoes do we understand that our justified status before God does not rest on the pillars of our own righteousness but on the cross and resurrection of Jesus do we understand that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God it's been said that the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart And no amount of of good things or moral living can change the fact that we have this sinful status that we were born with. It's our default state. Only the Spirit of God can call someone and give them a new heart and give them new desires and, and give them new life in Christ. It's not through moral deeds. It's also been said that Christianity is the only faith that not only do, do people repent of their sin, but they also repent of their own righteousness. They repent of their own good works. They acknowledge that's not what saves me. Faith in Christ is what saves me. It's the work of Jesus, it's what He's done, not what I have done. Well, Bilde concluded with the counsel to take his advice, to, to put on his shoe and start doing good. Stop this nonsense of insisting that you don't deserve the suffering, Job. Now turn and do good things, and then God will raise you up and will bring good things your way. He says, It's, it's not too late. Seek God and, and turn around and start doing good things. What do we think of Bildad's closing argument? What do we think of his final piece of advice? I'd say half true, half false. Some good, some bad. True, yes. Here's the good part. It's not too late. It's never too late. As long as we have breath in our lungs, it's never too late. Let's bring up the example of the thief on the cross. Okay? He's got minutes to live. He's lived his entire life as a, as a sinner, as a rebellion in rebellion against God, and in the last moments of his life he confesses and believes. So that's true. It's not too late. But the false part is the idea. That the pathway to being received and accepted by God is through turning your life around or turning over a new lady or becoming a better husband or a better father or a better worker or a better citizen of the world. That's not it. The pathway to God is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's always going to fit. And it's not too late. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we see your truth in the word that you, you've given us. We, we see your revelation. Father, we, we want to understand these exchanges between Job and his friends. And we want to see what's true, but we also want to see what's faulty. We want to see the bad counsel, and then we want to understand the, the true nature of what it means to be made right with you. And Father, we know that the answer to that is the person of Jesus Christ. We know that you have made it plain and through your Holy Spirit you've revealed it freely to all who believe that the only thing that fits is faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have, have called us into your kingdom. We thank you that you have, have not said it was too late for us. But as we repented of our sin and, and believed in Jesus Christ, you received us and you gave us new life. Father, we thank you for your Salvation. And we thank you for our Savior. Amen.